you know, if, if we zoom out and you're listening to the show and you're like, who the fuck cares about this data storage thing? Like, why is ephemeral storage versus long term? Who cares? All you need to think about is this allows you to lower, you know, fees in some certain way. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawns. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate ponzi. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, you got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Hello, everyone. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. GM, everybody. Then we've got Tarun, the giga brain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. Yo. Finally, I'm Hasib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Okay, so we finally got into the post-ETF hangover. I think as much as we're tired of the ETF, it looks like the market is even more tired of the ETF. Uh, because the market has just been basically puking for the last, I don't know, three, four days. Uh, BTC is down about 20% from the high. So it was at 49K on the high side. It was, it was threatening to touch 50K. And as the ETF has been live, it's just been kind of slowly drooping downward to today as a press time. It's something on the order of about 40K kind of circling up and down. It, it hit a low of, uh, I think, thir- I think it blew below 38. So um, this is a lot of the, Downshift in BTC has been blamed on GBTC. So uh, if you recall from the previous shows, we were talking about the net inflows to the other uh, ETF products. I think BlackRock finally hit a billion in net inflows, and almost all the other products have been net inflows. Uh, But that has not been able to counter the outflows coming from GBTC. So initially, I think last week, we we tallied up the GBTC outflows, I think, you know, a day or two after the ETFs had launched. And it got into about 500 million of outflows. And we were like, wow, that actually doesn't seem like that much given the 20 some odd billion they have. Uh, however, it looks like people were eventually waking up and realizing like, oh shit, I'm paying all these fees in GBTC. It's time for me to get out. And there's been now net estimated something on the order of $4 billion in total GBTC outflows. And it looks like that's not being balanced with inflows from other for other ETFs. And so a lot of these people are not just rotating out of GBTC into other ETFs, they're just selling and getting the hell out. So it this seems to be a big drag on the overall market. Uh, apparently, the FTX estate has sold over a billion dollars of GBTC shares. Uh, and so it looks like if, if this is to be expected, there may just be more puking to go as GBTC continues its, its uh, uh, you know, many of these people who have higher cost bases rotating out of GBTC and just getting out of their positions. Well, I'll be the first one to actually take a slight disagreeing position on this one. So I don't think you can blame GPTC because the total net flows across the entire ETF and ETP complex for all of the Bitcoin products is actually positive. So GBTC, you know, we can look at the exact data, you know, as of this morning was about, you know, $3.4 billion of outflows or so. And there was about $4 billion across every single product of inflows. And so, you know, in aggregate, the flows were, you know, call it ballpark close to zero over the, you know, over the last week. Um, no more money has been moving in or out of Bitcoin in the aggregate through these products. Um, it's basically flat. And the price is down dramatically, even with roughly flat flows. And this is just, in my opinion, you know, a result of the fact that there's hype leaving the market. And what we're not seeing are the flows outside of the exchange-traded complex. We're seeing you know, only the exchange-traded complex. There's clearly net sales action in spot markets elsewhere. And you, know, you can blame GPTC as in, that's the product that's losing the most money, but it just seems to be moving into other products, into you know, iShares, moving into Bitwise, moving into you know, all of the other products. And really just a transfer from GBTC. Yeah, if GBTC didn't exist at all, or if the SEC had declined, you know, Grayscale's application while approving all of the others, we might see a significantly larger net flow in the ETFs. Well, if you look at the flows basis, my understanding was that like day one, day two, it was quite positive, right? And basically it's been turning negative to balance out and, and end up zeroing out. 
And I think this was the opposite of what people were expecting, which is that GBDC maybe pukes day one, but then everything else starts like really gaining and we end up in a net positive flow position. But it seems like we went from positive to negative, which ended up net flat. Yeah, I mean, the bad day was the day where GBTC lost a billion dollars. And I think it completely transformed the narrative around the ETFs into one in which there was more assets at stake to leave the products than there was to enter them in the aggregate. And I think that's really transformed the narrative across the market and has led to a declining price, even though the flows in the aggregate since launch are positive. But the expectation was that they'd be even more positive. Yeah, right? totally. It's, it's always a question of relative to expectations. Yeah. I mean, a billion dollars net sounds like a lot, but like for an asset that trades, you know, $40 billion a day, like over several days, is it's, it's really pretty in, insignificant. And, you know, there are a lot of forced sellers like like the FTX estate and, and, and things like that. Um, but I also think there's like a little bit of like reflexivity to uh, GPTC too, where if you think, hey, people are in, who are in loss are the ones who are selling, where it's like, if you add any sort of you know, incremental you know, negative sell pressure, then more people are going to be lost and more inclined to rotate. So I don't think it's exactly a super efficient market. And I don't know what that sort of, you know, cost basis breakdown looks like for GPTC holders. But I mean, people are sort of optimistic that, you know, volumes on GPTC are going down over time. And so, um, you know, hopefully we're sort of reaching the end, but uh, who knows? Yeah, that seems plausible to me. And I guess the other thing is, I think this market is probably going to continue being spooked until we see the GBTC outflows stop and like it find, finally finds the equilibrium of, okay, th these were all the sellers, they're done. Now we go back to net inflows because all the other, G you know, all the other ETFs are, are only going to accumulate capital over the year as the um, you know, financial advisors and allocators finally start getting some of their clients into this product, which, which I don't think we expect it to be all at once, right? I think it's kind of a slow grind over the course of the year. Tarun looks so bored right now. Tarun hates the Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> it's just like, Tarun, wake up, wake up. Please kill me. Please kill me if I have to hear about again. This will be the last show where we talk about the Bitcoin ETFs for at least one show. I don't know if this that's is, true. I mean, we'll see. I hope that's true. All right. All right. Well, look, we, we've, we've, um, we, we've made our sacrifice to the ETF gods. I think we can move on now. Uh, there, was, there was one much more interesting crypto native story which was around a bug in one of the Ethereum clients called Nethermind. So um, I think it's maybe worth doing a bit of backstory just so people understand kind of what the story is about. So Ethereum, uh, back in the day, Ethereum had one client. And when we say client, we mean the program that people run in order to validate the Ethereum network. Um, in the, in, back in the day, Ethereum basically just had Geth, which was the Go Ethereum client written in the programming language Go, which just basically existed you know, from the very beginning of time, essentially, when, when Ethereum first came into existence. Uh, when Ethereum uh, went to Ethereum 2.0, they split up into two clients. One is called the execution client and one is the consensus client. The consensus client runs uh, basically the staking and the consensus layer, the, the what was called the beacon chain, and the execution client actually runs the code on Ethereum. And uh, right now, there's been this big hullabaloo around what's called client diversity, which is basically how much concentration is there in which client everybody is running to actually validate the Ethereum network or to run execution on the Ethereum network. On the consensus layer for Ethereum, there's actually very good client diversity. Uh, there are many different clients like, you know, Prismatic Labs and, you know, Nethermind and whatever, all these different people have clients. And uh, there's, there's a good distribution where I think it's like, you know, 40, 30, 20 or whatever. It's, it's pretty good. Um, the execution clients, however, are a very, very different story. On the execution clients, more than, what is it, like 90% uh, or like 85% or something? 78% are Geth. 78%, I see, okay. So about 80% of the clients that run execution on Ethereum are running Geth. So now Geth, again, it's the oldest. It's also the one that most other networks that fork the EVM also use Geth. So most of the rollups, you know, Avalanche, uh, you know, Phantom, all these other guys, as far as I know, they, they pretty much everybody runs Geth. Um, it's just the most battle-tested and it's the most used. Now, the problem with this, and uh, th so this came to a head on January 21st, uh, there was a critical bug in Nethermind, uh, in their uh, Ethereum client, which powers roughly 8% of validators. And now, Nethermind is a minority client. It's not the most used client. Uh, but this got people worried that like, hey, what if this bug, instead of being in Nethermind, was in Geth? Ethereum was able to continue running because Nethermind was such a small portion of the Ethereum 
uh, in a validator set. But if this bug was in Geth, then this would halt this this would completely halt the network, and it would mean that Ethereum would stop producing blocks and it would just get stuck until somebody would go in and, and fix the the Geth bug. And there would be no realistic way that people could rotate clients in that period of time, uh, rather than just waiting for the bug to somehow get fixed. And so this has led to a big conversation in Ethereum about should we work to intentionally increase client diversity and move away from the monopoly that Geth has over um, uh, over over execution in Ethereum. So a lot of people going back and forth. One thing to also note is that this is pretty weird in the sense that almost no other blockchain has client diversity at all. So if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin Core is the Bitcoin spec. There is no other client that that has any meaningful uh, market share. You look at other chains like Solana or Near or whatever, none of them have any other client. There's only the canonical client effectively. Um, so Ethereum is unique in having other clients to begin with, but it's increasingly being talked about as, hey, maybe we need to push as consumers of staking services or as uh, you know the uh, exchanges, push them to start adopting other clients to enforce client diversity. So what do you guys think about this whole client diversity debacle and debate? Uh, and, and where do you feel like this is going? Do you think that client diversity can happen or is this a pipe dream? Well, I, I personally don't think that you know, client diversity is necessary. What you need is operator diversity, geographic diversity, you know, resilience and strength through numbers. It doesn't matter if you have 12 different clients running the network. It's about, at the end of the day, how many different validators are there. And, you know, having diversity and resilience, you know, from, you know, how wide your validation is. Um, you know, I think it's almost safer to have one completely you know, battle-hardened client that everybody's focused on, as opposed to assuming that like through having multiple clients, like, you know, it doesn't matter if there's an issue. You know, yes, Bitcoin core moves slowly, but and yes, Geth moves slowly as well. But implementing clients in the first place is unbelievably complicated. Like the effort that it would take to create, you know, I think multiple new clients, hypothetically, would be Astounding. Implementing, you know, the Ethereum, you know, spec, so to speak, is not easy. It's like not trivial. The odds that you get it wrong, <laughs> I think, are significantly higher from a new client that's originated from scratch than, you know, an existing one. Um, you know, when I entered, you know, the Ethereum world in like 2016, 2017, this was actually a pretty big conversation back then. And, you know, I feel like the conversation has died out over the years and it was Oh well, we need to implement this in multiple languages. You know, Geth was Go. How do we implement this in Rust? How do we implement this in Java? How do we do this in like different programming languages? Because the idea was that one language itself wasn't dependable. I mean, I think that's a risk that can be taken. You know, and I think you know, it's almost more reasonable to have the entire community get behind Geth, make it you know strong and perfect, than to try to spin up new clients, which is a Herculean effort. And the amount of effort that goes into getting it right, I almost think you know, potentially can't even be done safely at this point. Um, yeah, I would I would mainly echo that. Although I I think like if you look at the history of um, sort of mission critical open source software, so like compilers, um, Linux operating systems, you know you you generally do see this thing where there's like some core component that is conserved. There's very, very, very few sort of like core kernels. Like there's, you know, there's all these people who make research kernels in academia, but there's not really like something that's used in millions of production servers that differs that much from the core Linux kernel. Like obviously you have modules and stuff. Uh, in the operating system that are different but and there's also the same thing with compilers like it took so long for there to be like a compiler to competitor to gcc in llvm and there's sort of this question of like why you want to do it usually one of the reasons people kind of when they take a mission critical piece of software and they want to rewrite it you know linux did it because it got over licensing and patenting issues from Bell Labs and Unix, and then Windows eventually. Um, that makes sense, right? That that's not that's a reason to make another operating system. It's cheaper. Um, you know, open source AI 
it's the same thing. It's like getting around sort of the licensing agreements and stuff. Um, but if you look at other mission critical software, it's very rarely that there's a, a reason to do it. That's like, hey, we want to make sure that there's kumbaya for every possible programming language, right? Like, there's a reason almost all compilers still just use the C plus plus compiler to C compilers at the bottom of the stack and then write stuff around it, as opposed to writing their own from first principles. Um, it's just very easy to make a mistake, and the mistake is catastrophic and very hard to find. Um, on the other hand, I do think there is some benefit. So, so sorry, another reason that people will make mission critical things that are not just closed source uh, competitor is extensibility. So like you may, in order to make a system more modular, so you have like the core component and then things that people can extend, you may have to rewrite the main thing because, you know, it was initially written as this monolithic single code base. And so you can't really break it apart into pieces. And there's a reason to make another one. So in the compiler case for LLVM, that was sort of the big deal, right? Like it separated the front end and back end more cleanly. And so people could build compilers for other programming languages using it. And so it kind of had this nice little feedback loop. Um, I don't really see an argument for that here either. It's not like adding other clients makes you more modular. It does adding other clients does give you some new functionality. Like, you know, you can double check particular implementations of like very core cryptography, you can make sure that like, hey, multiple people have seen it in different languages and come to the same thing. So like everyone's agreeing on the math correctly. Um, but I, I think there's sort of, yeah, there's kind of always been this war, like Robert was saying. Um, I think it's only become kind of more interesting with, with staking derivatives and also with the fact that there are tons of forks of these clients for different purposes that exist and maintaining the forks, the forks you could think of as like the modular components, right? Like I have the main thing, I can add these other pieces and use it for my use case. Um, so, so I guess long story short, I think client diversity is generally a bad idea. I think it is a good idea from a, as an academic exercise of proving, hey, there's like these faults that you can correct. But I don't think it's necessarily a good production software exercise because like I said, I, I think there's only really two reasons you rewrite mission critical software one is licensing getting over licenses and the other is kind of this modularity thing and that that neither of those applied to this scenario i thought that the linux kernel analogies is actually really apt the, the difference is that like the linux kernel does not update nearly as frequently as something like geth right geth is expected to be this sort of core that then people you know sort of sort of i think then linus torvalds from the 90s would be offended by what you just said no, I think if anything, you know, that that's the whole point is they're very protective and he's an asshole about the kernel so that it is solid and robust. Yeah, yeah. I, I just meant in the 90s yeah. it was updating like. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> Everyone does crazy shit in their 20s. So um, but I think uh, I think it's it really comes out like an incentive issue. Right. If you look at the clients today and actually to your point around around get if you remember back in the day, there was also parity. Right. And the idea with parity is that we're going to be more, you know, sort of for profit you know, red hat fedora kind of style. And like, there, therefore, there was sort of a, a profit motive to it. There's maybe a story around modernization. These days, you know, all, all of the clients, right, are basically sort of research or grant driven um, um, development. There's there's Reth, which is com you know coming out of uh, Paradigm. So it, it is possible to build a new client, but there's not really a profit motive. There's not really a business incentive. There's not really a, uh, you know, any, anything sort of self-serving around developing it. And so I think therefore, there isn't really a, a you know, desire or movement or or any reason to, um, hey, have a competitive marketplace of these things. These are kind of like R&D projects, um, almost sort of like nonprofits in a way. And, and so it's like, you know, how are you going to incentivize people to uh, uh, build new clients and run new clients if there isn't really, um, you know, any sort of uh, marketplace uh, for these kinds of things? So I, I will gently take the other side of that, although I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the arguments you guys have levied. I think if you look at the execution layer, uh, it kind of looks like, okay, well, clearly this is impossible, right? Like there's, there's just naturally going to be centralization in the most robust version of the Ethereum client, which is Geth and the end. If you look at the consensus layer, it's kind of the existence proof that that's not necessarily true, right? The consensus layer is pretty dispersed. Like there, there's not a lot of concentration in a single client. And 
you know, the, uh, uh, Tarun, you're making the point that like, look, you know, something that as actually mission critical, you have one implementation and that's the implementation. And that's the view that Bitcoin has always taken is that, look, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin core is the spec for Bitcoin. There is no external thing that is Bitcoin. There's just Bitcoin core. Literally, this piece of code is the, is the, uh, uh, is the spec for the protocol. Um, Ethereum does not take that view. And I think in a way that is, I mean, it's, in some ways you could say it slows it down. In other ways you could say, I think it makes it more robust. Also, also to, to be fair, I, I think Bitcoin is a weird example nowadays because now people are making all these custom clients for ordinal support and L2s and stuff. So Bitcoin actually, I think, is evolving more quickly than you think right now. But I, I agree, like the three-year-ago vision is... Sort of like, 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 it's sort of like Linux. It's, it's sort of like Linux in the way you're describing, right? Where like core is the kernel and you can kind yeah. of... Add. Yeah, 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 but 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 I, I think these add-ons now, thanks to ordinals, have been getting seeping in more into innards. If that true, true, true. But I mean, you know, RSK was doing that back in the day, and you know, there's all sure, you know, all yeah. sorts of other stuff like Lightning is a kind of this weird I, I, add-on. Also, you can think of it as the a, thing. The thing that's worth remembering is the first Ethereum client was neither in Rust nor in Go. It was C Ethereum written by Gavin Wood, and it's very important to remember that Ethereum itself flipped its client pretty quickly. Uh, and that's a historical right. vestige that's quite different than than uh, Bitcoin. Right. And there was also Ethereum J, which was the, I think what Tron originally Java. was a fork yeah. of Ethereum J, which is the Java version. And yeah, so there, there have been many Ethereum clients over the years and they've come and gone. Um, but I guess the the, the point that, that I'm trying to make here is that actually, I thought the analogy you were making, like, okay, mission critical software means there's one implementation. The, the one canonical example that I actually remember learning about when I first got into crypto was uh, space shuttles. Space shuttles actually do precisely this, which is that they have, I think it was four implementations by different programmers of the same mission critical code. Because a space shuttle, it's like, if there's a bug, at least, especially back in the day when you can't do over-the-air updates, uh, if there's a bug, it's like game over. The space shuttle crash, like, there's billions of dollars down the toilet. And so they have four implementations of the same code or the same uh, program, uh, and they run Byzantine fault tolerance over those, uh, like a Byzantine fault tolerant algorithm over those four implementations of the same code, because of course there can be bugs, there can be cosmic rays, flipping bits, and all sorts of craziness. Um, and that's what like re like mission critical comes from space shuttles. That's where the term comes from, uh, and that is the place where you yes, you actually do want this reimplementation of code um, because it's very very important that this thing always works. Now, in normal software, right, if I'm just running like an operating system. This is why I left the trapdoor of like the academic exercise of using it is good. I think in production, it's kind of annoying. I think the thing about space shuttles that's very nice is they have a finite lifetime. So you need it to work for this U-turn lifetime. I think the problem with blockchains is they have this like perpetual nature that makes the 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 running multiple versions like a lot more hairy to deal with. Yes, it's true. And obviously, Ethereum moves pretty slowly. I mean, obviously, Bitcoin moves slowly, too. So maybe it's more a function of age than of the, the fact that there are multiple clients. But you can tell Ethereum development moves very slowly because of all the coordination that's required across all of the client development. Um, that said, that's just kind of where Ethereum's at. You know, like I would never recommend Solana or you know any new generation of blockchain. Start by saying, great, let's go multi-client and support multiple clients simultaneously. Although Solana is trying to do that a little bit with Fire Dancer, but they're still saying, look, look, we're not going to slow down for Fire Dancer to catch up. We're just going to keep iterating and keep improving the tech. And I think that's right when you are a startup, um, when you are it's kind of in you sort of first flush as a new blockchain trying to get your footing. Uh, but I think where Ethereum's at, I think it's possible, and you're seeing it right now. Like there was this uh, uh, tweet thread from uh, who is it? Um, uh, Who's the guy who yelled at uh, Coinbase? It was like I'm pulling Gaster out all my stake from Rocket Pool. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, let me see who it was. Uh, whatever, I don't remember. Uh, there was some guy who was like, "Hey, I'm pulling out my money from uh, Coinbase because I don't like the fact that Coinbase is all running on Geth." And Brian Armstrong replied and said, "Hey, we're going to look into this and fix it and make Coinbase Cloud go multi-client and make sure that we're staking through different validators." Or it's sorry, a different DC clients. investor. DC investor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. DC investor. So now look, it's one guy. I don't know that there's, you know, this flood of people who are going to be following in his footsteps, but I think it's relatively easy for a small number of players to just kind of feel the zeal that's coming at them and decide to change their minds. The same way that in, in Bitcoin uh, 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 mining pools, 
people just got mad on Twitter and then the, the, the things changed, even though the incentives weren't really there, right? We know, look, the, the bug was not in Geth. The bug was in Nethermind, which is a minority client. There was a bug previously in Besu, which is another minority client. Most of the bugs are in the minority clients. So the reason why Geth is dominant is not because people are lazy, it's because people are rational, is that they know this is the most battle-tested uh, and, and the oldest of the, of the realistic clients that one can use. So people are smart. People, you know, people are maximizing their own profit. But if consumers can change the incentives and say, hey, it's really important to me that you actually lower your usage of the majority client, it's kind of like the, the Ethereum version of ESG. I think, it can, I think it can work, and I think it's already starting to work. I think it, I, it's 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 not that I don't think it's possible. It's it's that I think investors have never fucking done DevOps in their life and had to do an on call rotation. <laughs> and all I gotta say is fuck you, people who who've never had to do that because like it is very stressful. <laughs> let, let me tell you, in like many different contexts, it's like the worst. And it's usually just some like when token asshole yelling at Peter S, the main maintain one of the main maintainers of Geth, about like shit like this and i'm like i i don't know how that guy does the thankless job not only does he have to deal with the emergency stuff he has to deal with these fucking asshole airdrop farmers like you know it's it's it is it is kind of like hey, a very farmers? thankless thing to work on bitcoin because yeah, they're on ethereum no, no no sorry 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 in his twitter like if you if you ever see like him complaining about tokens, oh, 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 oh you know like the airdrop farmers will just be like giving him shit and you're like you wouldn't have any airdrops without this guy. <laughs> like, what <do> you, <laughs> it's just they're, they're just so dumb. Like I, it's like actually impressively like idiotic in some ways. Yeah, I mean, look, it is it's obviously technically possible to have client diversity. I, I think you know the point is it's not natural. It's very inefficient, and you have to sort of force it and be willing to eat the inefficiency. You're buying a ton of tail risk insurance, which you're basically never going to cash in. And so you're like, hey, this is just something that we're going to eat. And, you know, even even the you know, consensus client example, like your Prism and Lighthouse hey, are pretty much a duopoly. So it's not that actually diverse. And those were also that was also a very concerted effort with ETH2, as you said, where large grants from the Ethereum Foundation, from consensus went out to like build these things. If you went through like the ETH staking flow um, on Ethereum.org, like they, they pushed you to choose a more diverse client. Like it was a very concerted effort. And so I think if there is willingness to basically, you know, burn cash for the sake of sort of this tail risk insurance, then yes, you absolutely can do it. I think it's, it's my, my question is more, how can you make this sort of self-reinforcing? How can you make the market desire client diversity? How can you make entrepreneurs want, out, want to go out and make a brand new client? I don't really know what that answer looks like today. If you have an answer for that, then I think you kind of have a um, self-sustaining solution. No, that's a, that's a fair point. I don't know that you're ever going to get an economic mechanism to make this kind of thing happen, right? And like the blockchains, I think they're, you know, they, they are about tail risk because it's about being uh, like the whole point of blockchain. It's up all the time. It's usable all the time. And the one thing that could really shatter Ethereum's story is that it fails in a catastrophic way. Um, it, at, at the same time, like, look, it, it's, it's almost certainly the case that there are bugs in Geth. You know, like there's no way that there are zero bugs in Geth. I mean, we've had bugs in OpenSSL and the Linux kernel and things that have been around much, much longer than Geth and have had many fewer eyeballs on them over that period of time. So there's just no way that there's literally zero and we'll never find another bug in Geth ever again. Um, so, there, the, you know, there, there will be bugs. And, the, and at some point, we are going to have a bug that ends up causing some kind of consensus failure. You know, like it, it, it will just happen. If it's not a chain split, then, then some kind of uh, uh, massive downtime for Ethereum. Uh, and so I think it's a matter of creating the resilience to, I think, what is more or less inevitable at the expense of, yeah, we're going to eat more complexity and we're going to move slower in the meantime. But like, I don't think Ethereum at this point is about being the fastest to iterate or to move. I, do, I, I think it's probably wrong for Ethereum to prioritize that at this point in its life cycle. Yeah, uh, maybe. Like but I, I think that's also, you know, there's, there's a, a sort of, um, you know, bandit problem type of thing here, like. I can either spend, I have a fixed amount of resources. Uh, I have a bunch of different places I can spend them. I could spend them on having 10 clients or I could spend them on having one client, but get dank sharding working or 4844 or do, you know, like, and from an engineering organization standpoint, I think it's kind of, it's, it's yeah, it's a different trade-off point on the trade-off surface, right? Like the Solana version of this is kind of interesting because they somehow outsourced clients to other people, which is a bizarro 
Well, I mean, yes, but they also have Gito Sol. They also have the forks of the Solana Labs validator. That I think like Solana is actually much more diverse than you think. All the people doing SVM rollups um, also have client kind of client forks. It's like it, it it is starting to look like Ethereum's ecosystem. It, it probably the only L1 that has like that many client implementations. But I, I just think like you have to remember, like whenever people are complaining about like, oh, my feature didn't make it into mainnet, or like why are why do we have no bandwidth on L2s and we need alt DA layers? You know, like all of that stuff stems from the fact that we split the engine fixed engineering pie, fixed budget across many places and so and 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 look 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 it's a values judgment right as community yeah, made yeah. that value but hold on i'm hold just on. pointing for, out for, for solana yeah for solana my understanding i mean correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is like everything is derived from the solana core client and like they added little things on the same way that people have added stuff on together oh, no 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 no, no 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 it's all still it's the not, same it's, code base. It's, it's so many little like Gito soul Gito is like Gito soul is, is, is Gito is it's added, like it's like but fire yeah, dancer Gito is, is, is an totally different Fire Dancer and C++. Yeah, Fire Dancer, Fire Dancer is a ground-up rewrite, but Fire Dancer, yeah. they, didn't they, didn't they um, constrain their initial launch to say, like, look, we actually, a bunch of the stuff, we're just going to run uh, the original code and then we're just going to add, like, modules over time because the ground-up rewrite was just way too big for them to but actually they, be able to get it. But they changed, like, everything. Even the, like, erasure codes are completely rewritten. Like, I, 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 I think you should in, really... In the V1. Yeah. I mean the the read Solomon okay, implementation like, there is completely different. So I I I I think at least from what I see in their GitHub, which you know is my hmm. my north star on this. Uh, I I I think like you should really consider Fire Dancer a complete, you know, like it's like Reth and Geth. It, yeah, that's my that's my assumption is that they want to eventually get to a complete rewrite where they jettison all the old code. Yeah. Um, but my understanding was that they were they were basically like, look, we're going to chew up, we're going to bite off something that we can actually chew initially as opposed to waiting until we have the entire client rewritten um but yeah look fair, fair point i understand obviously fire dancer is not live uh and uh well i just i, think the, I just think willing, it's interesting that they, they chose different you know engineering choices right like fire dancer chose particular optimizations they want to do they're going to rewrite it whatever but they didn't hold up hard fork inclusion right it wasn't like they had engineering resources that would have gone towards adding new features for the next hard fork into maintaining another client, right? Whereas in Ethereum, I, I do think that's actually true. I really think there's a, I don't think the pool of people working on clients is growing anywhere near as fast as like transaction demand is growing. And you have this finite resource and you have to allocate it and you you chose an allocation as a community to to spread it across clients, but you could have imagined an alternative universe where all these features that everyone talks about, which aren't implemented, actually are already in the chain because like instead of rewriting the client x times, you actually added the feature. So there's there's also this what, what kind are, of what are all these features that you're I mean dank sharding and all of the data availability related stuff. Are you kidding me? Like that that. There's the entire there's there's tens of billions of dollars of market cap that have arisen because of how slow this is. Never forget that, right? right? Like that literally because people just didn't want to invest time. In this. So it is a, a management thing. It's an organizational behavior thing of like we have finite resources and we're treating them as if they're not finite, but they actually are. And so, what's the opportunity cost? Well, it's this thing, and then so now we have a, a DA layer war. So actually, maybe this is a good transition to talk about Denkun. So Denkun is the name for the upgrade that is going to be actually shipping proto dank sharding. So proto dank sharding, for those who are not familiar, long story short, this is essentially what's going to implement EIP four eight four four, which is the um, uh, blob storage. Uh, so essentially, what this is going to do is right now, if you're a rollup and you want to do uh, post some data to Ethereum. Uh, you have to pay a lot of money, and basically, you're you're taking up the same space that every other computation in Ethereum is taking up, of you know writing writing uh, 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 volatile storage onto Ethereum. Um, in a proto dank sharding world, there's going to be a separate lane that is only going to be for data availability. Basically, meaning it's going to be short term storage where you can just dump some blob of data, arbitrary data. Ethereum doesn't care what you're putting there; it's just anything, um, and it's stored for it's stored and retrievable for a short amount of time, essentially. Uh, this is more or less ready to go. I think people are projecting right now, maybe like end of Q1. Uh, I think uh, this is projected to potentially hit mainnet. Um, it, there was a there was a testnet 
trial run that was taking place on Gurley. Apparently it didn't go very well. Uh, and so they're now kind of going back to the drawing board that may end up delaying things. But uh, this is projected to lower the data availability costs for rollups on Ethereum significantly. Now, that being said, um, from what I've read, the expectation for the throughput, meaning the total amount of data that's going to be writable to the, the, the um, uh, blob storage on Ethereum, is something on the order of 0.6 megabytes per second, something like that. Like not, you know, We don't know the exact numbers right now, but it's, it's not huge relative to what people are talking about for data availability layers like Celestia or Avail or uh, EigenDA. Those are projected to be more in like the many megabytes per second of total data throughput that they can uh, withstand. Ethereum is going to be relatively low. And so there's a lot of projection that even in a proto-dank sharding world, although it will lower costs for rollups significantly, the total demand for DA is so high that uh, there's still going to be, we're still going to have to use external DA uh, in order to withstand all the demand for uh, data availability. And, see, usually so, you are um, you are the uh, person who forces everyone to stop and define some terms, but I'm going to flip the script on you and make you define oh. data availability for the listener. I, could, I used it first, so, but I'm going to still make you do it. Okay, thank you. Uh, no, good, good shout. Uh, so data availability, it's the new hot term that everybody's talking about. Um, Celestia, EigenDA, and Avail are all data availability layers. Data availability is basically, the, the very simple explanation is that uh, there are certain kinds of storage that are not needed for long-term storage, but basically short-term storage or medium-term storage. Uh, so for example, for rollups, especially optimistic rollups, Oftentimes, you have what's called this challenge period where you need to be able to see uh, the data that has been committed to this layer two for up to two weeks uh, or up, up to a week or two weeks or whatever. The different uh, roles parameterize it differently. Um, and so data availability is a, a, a mechanism to prove this data has been uh, stored and it's available for up to some short period of time. It's not forever like a network like Filecoin or... Um, uh, 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 what's, what's the infinite story? Arweave, right? Or Arweave, which claims that it stores data forever, or Filecoin, which stores data up to you know some long contract period. Uh, but instead, it's like, hey, this data is going to be available for X period of time, and then you know, no, no bets are off on whether or not this data will continue to be available. And um, the, the the replication and the availability is very important to rollups in particular. So almost everybody, when we talk about data availability, we're mostly pointing at rollups. Almost nobody else really has this data access pattern. Uh, and but rollups are the big story for Ethereum scaling, and that's why data availability has become such an important idea that many different teams are trying to um, uh, uh, add on to the capacity of Ethereum in a proto dank sharding world uh, to give it more data availability capacity. So, what do you guys think is going to happen when we get data availability increases? A lot of people are now projecting that because of the total demand and the total number of rollups increasing so much that we may actually not even get the discount in DA prices that people are projecting with proto-dank sharding because basically as soon as we get more capacity, demand just increases so, to fill so, it up. So do, do, you, do, do you know what Brace's paradox is? Uh, oh, is that the um, traffic? Yes, uh, exactly. It's one where yeah, when you it, add yeah. a road, you actually increase congestion in certain networks under certain types of flows. Um, I feel like this is... a a nice apt version of this where like sometimes you build a road and actually all you do is increase congestion because everyone wants to take the fastest road or the safest road or whatever. And so they all just kind of uh, keep doing that. that. That does seem, uh, I mean, on the face of it, it seems implausible today because almost everyone is using the main road Ethereum as DA. Yeah, everyone is using the main road, right? So I think Brace's paradox only works if there's already multiple roads. Yeah, you you need you need roads of different amounts of traffic. Like you need roads that are highways and that they're kind of have constant speed that doesn't the speed it takes you doesn't depend on how many other people are on the road versus like single lane roads where like speed you go at depends on. But you could argue that a lot of the alternative DA layers now in a world where you have multiple of them you might actually start having this kind of brace-like effect. Um, well, what's going to happen is the newest data availability layer that you know people get excited about will be the one with this paradox because everyone's going to race to whichever layer. Yeah, 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 I agree. I, I agree. I kind of agree with that. Well, they're all fighting to be the layer. Everyone wants to be the brace paradox. You want to be the brace brace data availability <laughs> layer, right? That's the paradox. It's a double paradox. Is that 
it's going to happen because the road itself wants it to happen. Well, data availability is kind of weird because it is, it, it is in a sense right. like a B2B thing in that consumers like don't know where their data is being made available because they don't necessarily care. Yeah, exactly. Right? So <laughs> like, would that not be an indication that like actually the protocols themselves are likely to be pretty rational? And sort of allocate efficiently across all the all the roads, so to speak. I mean, I think we're seeing we're seeing certain rollups or like people who have moved some of their applications to their own rollup. Like Avo announced today, they're using Celestia. Um, Avo is like a large perpetuals decentralized perpetuals exchange. That disclaimer, I think everyone in this show is uh, investor in. Um, and uh, you know, I think there was a there's Lyra Finance a couple of weeks ago. So you're starting to see like people who have real users. And are paying the DA costs suddenly be like, wait, I don't want to pay the DA costs anymore. <laughs> and I think the market is starting to, to flip into this fee mindset. Now, I was talking with someone today, even if the DA layers lower the fees to, you know, Solana-like levels for a lot of these applications, like I think that's like the, the goal in some ways of like, you know, if, if we zoom out and you're listening to the show and you're like, who the fuck cares about this data storage thing? Like, why is ephemeral storage versus long-term? Who cares? All you need to think about is this allows you to lower, you know, fees in some certain way. Because it turns out these data storage fees are quite high if you make them perpetual. But if you time-bound them, you can make them cheap. And I still don't think that you can say that roll-up UX is like, roll-ups are like one-to-one -one with Solana just because the fees are the same. Because I, I really think that UX difference is still not very non-trivial between the two i mean I, how do you feel when you you know do you feel like if you went to a, a roll-up to use an application and the fee went down 100x you would you'd be like okay great i'm gonna stay here versus moving to a cheaper yeah i don't know how much i mean uh, th this is actually also an interesting argument uh i i think there's like if the fee is low it doesn't really change the ux at least not for me if the if the fee is like 10 cents versus like a, a tenth of a cent I think for meme coin traders, that's the only place where it, it matters. Because it's like people who are like, I have 10 bucks. I want to buy 10 different meme coins right now. You know, it's like, okay, then you're very, very fee sensitive. <laughs> yes, yes. But I mean, if you look at like Binance Smart Chain or you look at like Polygon, like fees are not like, I, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that you need to be like that, that basically demand is responsive to like fractions of a fraction of a cent, you know? Like I, I think like maybe there's a theory that oh the guy with ten dollars like he can do all these things on Solana he can't do on Binance Smart Chain, um, but I I just don't think there's a lot of actual evidence for that story being a driver of of behavior. Like, uh, well, I think, I, I'm I think just saying that this is something I this is something I feel like I hear all the time that people are saying it's like oh like right, once I think people our do fees are this. like Solana then we will compete for the meme coins again. I, I just don't, yeah, I, I, it I just doesn't don't know. feel like that's true to me, but I, I'm willing to be wrong. It doesn't feel like that's true to me either. I don't know. Tom, what do you think? Oh, I, I was going to say, I mean, I think, you know, sort of like the whole like log versus linear wealth debate. I think there's sort of like a inverse log, like, like cost debate here thing too, where you, I think you're right. If you go from, uh, I think a 10th of a cent to a hundredth of a percent or a thousandth of a percent, like it, it's actually like so negligible at that point. And I think even we get this argument too around like latency as well. People say, okay, you know, Solana, you have, you know, a few hundred millisecond block times versus, you know, one second confirmation time on a roll-up. Sure, may maybe if you're a high-frequency trader, maybe you're trying to do, you know, NASDAQ on-chain, that, that, that is a meaningful difference. For people who are trying to send USDT back and forth to their friends or, you know, mint an NFT, that is really not a meaningful difference. Um, and so I, I just find it hard to believe that um, that is going to be where people are sort of making their decision. I think it's going to be much more around where do developers want to actually build their next application? Is this a place where they feel like they can find users and they can find capital and they can find, you know, a great experience to build on top of? And, think, you know, again, I think that's more where Solana succeeds versus a rollup is that it's, you know, simple, it's monolithic. Um, you can come up and you can, you can, you can, you can deploy. But obviously the downsides of the SVM, people having to bridge over, you know, having to like find new users and capital. So I think in many respects, like the, the, the costs of the tech are, a very minor, uh, you know, determiner of um, uh, uh, usage, and it's, it's much more about sort of these other factors. As I go back to your uh, uh, fee question, there's actually a poly market um, for the gas price per blob one month uh, after EIP four eight four four. I don't know, like, what one blob you want to show it on the screen. Like, yeah, yeah, I have not done the back of the envelope math to even like 
grok the basics. Yeah, I, I didn't know what this means. Um, so yeah, I'm like, I, I realize like we're actually we actually are like one unit off from like a like average like tr- transaction or like you know call data amount or like you know uh, 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 storage size. But um, interesting that there's already a, a market here. Um, I guess if listeners know what a blob corresponds to um, in terms of practical usage, I'd be curious to to hear. Okay, so none of us actually know what this means. <laughs> no, I guess not. I'm glad. I'm glad we threw it up here. Is is like a roll up? Uh, is a roll up settling one blob per block? Okay, a, a blob is 128, 128 kilobytes of temporary data. Yeah, it's just hundred. It, it. Okay. This doesn't seem that off. I mean, in this prediction market, it doesn't seem that off from vaguely what the costs are today in the status quo. I mean, looking at the upper bounds of like 0.01 ether and stuff to 0.1 ether. Um, no, that is cheaper. It is cheaper. This yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the market is pricing in a, a 10x yeah, reduction definitely effectively. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. if it's 128K. Um, let me zoom out. Let me zoom out and look at this from first principles for a second. So I think data availability does lead to different types of applications fundamentally. I think everyone's focused on like, oh, it leads to L2s being efficient. But I also think it could lead potentially to very different things. Um, you know, when you look at like what is the cost of writing something to a blockchain, some data, the reason it's so expensive is because like you're not writing it to one computer, you're writing it to like 200,000 computers and like forever. That's like the notion that most people have about Bitcoin or Ethereum. I mean, it's like data is crazy expensive because like you're writing it all over the place and you're writing it in forever versus writing it all over the place for a short amount of time, that's way cheaper, right? But it's still fundamentally like crazy expensive because you're writing it all over the place. You know, to write 128K of data to like, you know, an S3 bucket <laughs> is, you know, nothing, right? Like it's it's free forever. Um, so I think what happens is you start to innovate on the data availability products. Oh, it's not forever. It's for a week. It's for two weeks. It's for you know, two minutes, you get different like applications entirely. Like I actually think, you know, crypto gaming actually might be a weird, like long-term beneficiary of like blobs and more transient storage in general. Um, Just because like, you know, if I'm making a video game, I don't need the data to persist for 20 years. I need it to persist for like, I don't know, maybe a couple months in some sense. And like, maybe it just completely unlocks a new type of application there. And yeah, maybe like there's a lot of on-chain like NASDAQ-like trading that just doesn't function at all. But when it's more transient, it does function. And, you know, I'm curious to know what sort of like the use cases that erupt from this are that aren't just like, oh, this was designed for L2s to post data that you need for exactly two weeks. Yeah. I mean, so far, I haven't seen a single... I don't think I've seen a single game. I don't think I've seen a single application. Yeah. Claim to me that they're going to use DA for this alternate use case. That said, the further away you get from the more crypto native stuff of like DeFi or layer twos or whatever, the less people even care about any of these concepts. They're like, oh yeah, I mean, look, my game's already centralized, so I might as well just store all the shit myself. And There's a $15 billion uh, market cap coin that says there's some amount of care. A $15 billion market cap coin that, wait, what? About Celestia. Care in these things. I'm saying, I'm just oh, saying like Oh, Celestia. FTV, excuse <laughs> yeah. me, FTV. Yeah, FTV, yeah. FTV. <laughs> let's not say market cap, FTV. Yeah, sorry, sorry, FTV, um, FTV. Okay, yeah, let's think market cap. Uh, yeah, look, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, Here, here's the other thing I would say, and kind of going back to the previous point about um, performance, right? Because I, 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 I want to continue this thread of like, how much are people sensitive to fees and also how much are people sensitive to latency? Because I think this is also a big part of the story about rollups and about Solana and about why people are going to be moving away from Ethereum mainnet and these traditional experiences. I mean, this is also something, by the way, is unique to crypto. This like fee versus latency trade off in UX design, right? Like in what in, in in like if I made Robinhood or Revolut, I don't really ever think about that, right? I just try to. Well, you, you know, do in that you zero. want to get the you latency as low zero. as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You make both zero. Yeah, exactly. But the data is. Plentiful because you just store it on one server. <laughs> oh, totally. And you can do totally. it at unlimited uh, scale. I mean, ironically, I'm pretty sure that storing stuff on Arweave, which is supposed to be forever, is cheaper than call date on Ethereum, which is supposed to be temporary, right? So, like, I I, I think the the absolute um, externality is not how these things are being priced. It's just a, it's just a market, and there's like some constraints that are being set somewhat arbitrarily on 
Like, why why is Ethereum called data more expensive? But than the data on our weave storage on our weave can't really do anything. There's no like other applications that are composable with that data, really. At least to my current knowledge, like the, well, there's no applications composable with call data, right? Call data is transient. Yeah, that's true. But like on Ethereum and on Solana and all these places, like the data is like super valuable because it represents like token balances and the transfer of those tokens, and it's like you know extremely valuable data. Like storing like a photo or a movie or something like that, like you know, it's not as valuable. I I, I also think there's kind of this this weird thing that I I still have not been able to philosophically get around, which is like philosophically, blockchain started as append only, right? Like there's no there's no notion of this like delete transient behavior, right? Of course, you know, you eventually add that back on. But the history of computing has always been this kind of like just-in-time storage, just-in-time compute, right? Like that's how the cache hierarchy kind of means that, you know, whatever, you, you're not really a von Neumann architecture computer in, in any sense of the word in a modern computer. But it's never been clear to me like what blockchains get from these types of caching optimizations. Like I, I, I think L2s are an example, but it's sort of a blockchain eating a blockchain. It's not like a caching thing that, Without the caching, you would just like never work, right? Like L2s are working right now without blob space. They're just more expensive in some some sense. So there's just kind of this weird thing to me where I I don't I haven't seen something that isn't just like what's the use case of this particular thing? Another blockchain, you know? Like <laughs> it, 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 we haven't quite. Gotten... <laughs> that's that true. is true. That said, we love blockchains. Especially on the show, we love blockchain. So that's the best. That's the best Christmas I, present I, is more blockchain. Yeah, the chopping blockchain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's I'm why just we're saying, here, I would like to see some, like you know, like Darun, oh, how like, could you? How could you? You're ruining Christmas. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm just <laughs> saying, like, like it would be cool if the like to to Robert's point of like, is there something else? Because like, okay, yeah. Great. I agree. It, what is there? What Tarun, could... you are in the wrong industry if you're asking, <laughs> is there something else? I think I think maybe, maybe you need to take a vacation, come back, renew your, your love of blockchains. No, no, no. I but love personally, them. Personally, I, I think love... if there are more blockchains, that's fucking awesome. I, I think, I... I just think like caching, caching, right, enabled a lot of things and operating systems like window managers. Like why do you have the UX that you have with like having multiple windows? Like caching helps a lot with with like at a very basic level for them that's like some application that was enabled not just strictly like oh i could like do more of this compute you know and, and like i just feel like somehow that is not obvious to me in a lot of these systems like where that comes from other than fee like the fee part i get right uh, okay, the maybe, ux maybe the you know i analogy. honestly would say something like privy and like embedded wallets is much better for user UX than this 10x fee reduction because it makes it feel closer what? to a Web2 app or Solana. And the fee reduction matters until some point, right? People aren't elastic, like what we were just saying, right? Like Yeah, yeah but we're not anywhere near that point for something like Ethereum, right? Ethereum fees are crazy. I agree, but now suppose we we, we take the DA layer, we, we made the fee Solana fees. I still think the marginal utility to the user actually goes up more from the... Privy style embedded wallet experience versus the the fee beyond like there's some threshold at which they completely flip. Right, but but here's the point that I was going to make is that L2s also enable a lot of this. Not necessarily you don't need a privy style thing, but you just need the fact that you know L2s have these sequencers who basically run the chain. Right, it's it's potentially even a centralized entity, although people want it to be decentralized sequencers over time. Um, one of the advantages of these sequencers is that you can give people these optimistic confirmations. Instead of saying, okay, we're going to fully achieve consensus and do all this fancy shit. Instead, we're going to say, look, uh, we're going to tell you, thumbs up, you're in the blockchain, even though you're not actually in the blockchain yet. But I promise you, you'll be in the blockchain. And if you're not, you know, you can you can at me and take some, you know, I'll pay you some money. I'll give you a refund later if uh, it turns out you're not in the blockchain. And this actually enables really great UX at even lower latencies than Solana. Right? You can basically say, like, look, the moment you get, the moment you ping my IP and I give you a check mark, you're good. So that can get you down to like 100 millisecond latency or like more Web2 style latencies. Um, you know, I, I, I think this uh, kind of the uh, intermediated architecture where you have this optimistic layer in between yourself and the chain confirmation 
I think this is going to be the direction that all blockchains go over time. Or not all blockchains, but I should say all applications go over time, right? If you're if you're a DEX, if you're a, a game, I'm not actually going to wait until the blockchain says yay, yay or nay. Because, yeah, I, I don't, even if I'm a game, I don't want, even if I'm on Solana, I don't want people to wait 400 milliseconds. Like, that sucks. No game would ever say, great, let's, we have to wait 400 milliseconds because the blocks, you know, block time says so. Well, it does ask the server, <laughs> you know, very quickly. Right. Did, like, you get the kill shot or not or whatever. Exactly. But it doesn't wait 400 milliseconds to ask whether you got the kill shot, right? It right. needs super snappy latency and it uses a lot of optimistic tricks to assume the answer is yes. Right, right, right. And, and this, if the answer is no, then this, I go and revert. This optimistic thing is effectively the same as, you know, in some ways what, you know, caches in a processor do, right? They like optimistically store a cache line, even if it doesn't know it needs to read it because it assumes there's some sequentiality and like you'll get some benefit from it. Well, it's, it's, it's I, more like not, the sort of superscalar processors. For sure, sure, sure. But I, I, I just don't. It, to me, it's it, there's still kind of this like missing thing of like I open Phantom, and I use Solana applications, and it's very responsive. I mean, they have problems with transactions not landing, like that. They have tons of problems with like spam. So like, let's let's ignore that. But the the actual application usage is just so much easier onboarding for a new user than an L two and L two like. You kind of need an intermediary lending you money on the L2. Otherwise, you have to go through the canonical bridge. It takes forever. You don't have the same onboarding UX either, I feel like. And that's that's there, something I, I don't, I've been thinking about. I disagree. There are exchanges that will you know give you a direct deposit on an L2. Going to base is easy. This is, this is like, Going um, to base like, looks nice. This is like a very... Like, uh, on the own Binance, it's like almost every L2, they support direct withdrawals. Yeah. I guess that's um, true. I was gonna say. Imagine this is just like a uh, this is like a twist on Chinese room argument. You know, you're you're sending transactions into a box, and you know, on the outside, they say, "Hey, transaction was confirmed." Do you, does it matter if it's just you know a single server sit, sitting somewhere that's actually processing all the transactions, or it's you know the entire Solana blockchain going through consensus? Practically not, especially if the the end result is you're know, going to get you to the same point. You know, several days down the line. Yeah, I just think I just think somehow like. Features that improve UX seem to never get any priority in these roadmaps. And again, maybe we're back to where we started of like, hey, we have fixed engineering budget. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't spend it on duplicating the thing more than three times. Right? Well, going back to Vitalik's post about cypherpunk values, I think it is really like, yes, you, you look, you're totally right. And obviously, you know, four of us are investors and we care a lot about creating great products as opposed to just, you know, great protocols. Um, but Ethereum is Ethereum because of the values that it espouses. For like sure, for sure. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm look, we're not, not focused on UX. Like the UX of Ethereum I, is shit. No, it's like C plus. Uh, okay, well that's. I mean, I don't know. For for a startup, that's shit, right? Like from the perspective of product building, and Bitcoin is even worse. Yeah, and Bitcoin, it's like, yeah, yes, you're right. It's it's bad, and it's going to stay bad forever. God bless Bitcoin. Well, I that I actually am. I, I would be willing to to bet against. I think I on think the these, next chopping block. <laughs> I think I think the Bitcoin roll ups are, are are the Bitcoin roll up world really? is kind of interesting <laughs> lately. Okay, all right, all right, interesting. Maybe we'll have um, to, to revisit. But but this. but I I I I I guess to me it's just more like I I want to kind of feel like the L two progress is more than just fees because like I, I get the fees. Are important, but I think I think the the fees are not linearly elastic. It's not like I I decrease the fees ten x, I get ten x more utility for yeah. a user, and I somehow think like that keeps just being completely missed, I, it, and it in ways that like annoy me when I use try to use some products. Yeah, there's definitely diminishing marginal utility for reducing fees, but we're not there yet, right? We can we can still yeah, reduce no, fees, no and we will, we will yeah. get a much you know uh, a much better UX. Yeah, yeah. I think that that gap is between like Solana and the rollups is where, or like Solana and Polygon, right? Like that's where there is this just inelasticity where nobody really cares if it's like a, a, a tenth of a cent or a thousandth of a cent. But people really, really do care between like it's $2 to do a swap versus it's two cents to do a swap. I think there's a lot of elasticity in that, in that gap. So yeah. anyway, we're up on time. Uh, we'll be back next week. I'm sure there's going to be no more ETF conversations at all in any way so uh look forward Wait, for, to for for, for, the, for the record post ETF I, feel like, block. I, I feel like somehow someone on the internet will interpret what i said as being a solana shill so i i i, I want to let the record be straight Wait, I are think, you not a solana shill i think i think there's duality 
where both of the, both ecosystems have their right and like each like using products in both places gives you it, it just like gives you a lot more insight into like there are things they could learn from each other but instead everyone's just like constantly beating each other up and like i think yeah. the 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 code bases the products like if you use those and read the code there's a lot of lessons that could be learned and like somehow i i just sure, think like sure. in, in eth this like obsession with optimizing DA, I feel like at some point the, the returns to that are going to zero, right? And so we need to do something else. And I think that's why people are excited about restaking because it's not, it's like, it has like, yes, there's DA, yeah. but then there's more, right? And then like, I don't know. To, it sounds like Robert's something a Solana point. show would say. <laughs> All right. With that, thank you for giving us the last word, Tarun. We're going to yeah. sign off. Thank yeah. you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>